Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's first rally as a presidential candidate for 2024, held on Saturday in Waco, Texas, famous for the Branch Davidian siege and massacre, which has inspired far-right anti-government militias, as well as Timothy McVeigh, who went on to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Joining us to discuss Trump's incendiary rhetoric calling for protest and violence is Jennifer Machia, a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric. An historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency, she's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. And then we look into the massive protests in France against raising their retirement age from 62 to 64, with another nationwide demonstration led by the unions planned for Tuesday. We will contrast how French voters and workers rise up to protect their generous social programs in comparison to Americans who have a far less of a social safety net then the French, who get six weeks of vacations, free health care and prescriptions, and a secure retirement. Joining us is David Andelman, a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He is the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles, 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia. He runs the Substack blog, Andelman Unleashed, and we'll discuss his article at CNN, Paris is still burning, but Macron survives by a hair. Then finally, we'll look into the history of how foreign wars test the moral convictions of American leftists as the far right and far left embrace an alternative reality that America and NATO are to blame for the war in Ukraine not Russia. Joining us is Michael Kazin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Dissent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace 1914-1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History, And his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. We'll discuss his article at Dissent magazine, Eject the Left-Right Alliance Against Ukraine. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and is the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Machia. Hello, Ian. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Jennifer. And yesterday, Saturday, in Waco, Texas, which, of course, is famous for the February 1993 51-day standoff with the Branch Davidians, which culminated in 76 of them dying, along with uh, including 25 children. And for some reason or other, Donald Trump chose to do his first presidential rally for the 2024 presidency on the Republican side at Waco, literally on the day of the 30th anniversary. Uh, And he started his rally by playing a song, Justice for All, that features a choir of the men imprisoned uh, for their role in the January 6th insurrection. So he has them singing the national anthem intercut with Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And then in truly Trumpian style, uh, Trump said, that song tells you a lot because it's number one in every single category, he told (laughs) the crowd (laughs) yesterday, saying, and number two was Taylor Swift and number three was Miley Cyrus. Well, of course, that's total fantasy. But still, (laughs) what do you make of this? I mean, I know you're kind of laughing and I'm laughing, but my God, we have never had a president or a former president or a presidential candidate in this country openly call for civil war. This man is really dangerous. He is really dangerous. And, um, you know, we've been saying this for years. So a demagogue is an unaccountable leader, right? And Donald Trump is the epitome of uh, a dangerous demagogue. I've never seen a political figure in American history um, who is so intent on being held uh, uh, to prevent himself from being held accountable. He uses words and actions that um, prevent the political system from um, restraining him. And he's really good at it, unfortunately. But prior to this rally, he, on his Truth Social platform, he, he was talking about death and destruction, potential death and destruction if he's uh, indicted or charged. And he also shared an image of himself holding a baseball bat with a kind of vicious scowl on his face next to a picture of Alvin Bragg the DA in Manhattan, who is expected to indict him in the next few days, he's referred to him as ab- absolute human scum and an animal. And of course, he's an African-American man, so there's more than a whiff of racism there. So this, is, again, is just extraordinary. And I mean, why aren't the Republicans pulling him over? I mean, is that a stupid question? 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, so it's very interesting. So just in the things that you mentioned about how he has responded to possibly being indicted, he's using three strategies that you described perfectly. One is ad baculum, which is threats of force or intimidation. One is reification, where you treat people as objects or animals. And the other is ad hominem. So that's, um, you know, name calling and um, trying to change the subject by uh you know, imputing the the honor, integrity of of the accuser, and and those three strategies have typically been used by American presidents and demagogues around the world to incite violence and indeed civil war. So, as you mentioned, like this is a president or a presidential candidate who has no compunction about using war rhetoric, um, using it against his own nation. Um, And in fact, that's what we saw him do on January 6th. I wrote a report for the January 6th committee where I explained how he had used war rhetoric to attack the nation on January 6th in his speech and how he had been doing that for the previous, you know, six years. So um, this is very much on on par for him. Well, the the warm-up acts, of course, were Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Dan Patrick. He's a uh, Lieutenant Governor, which I understand in Texas, and you're in Texas, Jennifer. He he's a the real power, isn't he? Even more so than the governor. Yes, he's definitely driving legislation in the state. So Marjorie Taylor Greene said to the crowd, "They are not just coming after President Trump; they're coming after you." And President Trump is just the only one standing in their way. Now, Trump himself has said that on a number of occasions. To my mind, that is the most sinister of, of all of this kind of insurrectionist rhetoric because it's, it's ginning up the crowd and the, and the base to believe that they have a role to play in protecting this demagogue. And, of course, in his true social post attacking Alvin Bragg and the so-called Department of Injustice, as he refers to it, He's basically putting them into the fight, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that line that Marjorie Taylor Greene used, um, you heard Trump repeat it several times. He has created um, posts, you know, as far back as 2018 on Twitter. Um, he's used it most recently in an email solicitation trying to gin up money for, you know, this controversy. It's incredibly fascist, um, right? It says that life is permanent warfare. They're out to get you. I am, you know, they're all corrupt. <laughs> you have no power. And if if you let them get me, right, then they will absolutely get you. And it's very much about trying to create loyalty between Trump and his followers, right? You owe him everything because he's the only one who's going to fight for you. He's the only one who's preventing them from getting you. Um, it's also been used, I mean, the exact same phrase with the same kind of image that Trump has used by Modi uh, in India, by Netanyahu in Israel. Um, It's very much consistent with this authoritarian appeal and this authoritarianism that we've seen um, around the world. So choosing to do this rally on the 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian siege, and that was a 51-day siege culminating in this horrible burning of the building and the even though the ATF obviously mishandled it grossly, it's pretty clear that this guy, David Koresh, who was a really sick 
disgusting human being, he set the fires and shot and stabbed a bunch of the people before they were burned to death, including 25 children. So it's hard to understand how this has become the inspiration for these militia groups in this country, particularly the the three percenters and the Proud Boys, etc. So is there an excuse for doing this? I mean, is, is this deliberate? Because one of the people that was there for the 51-day for the vigil was none other than Timothy McVeigh, who went on to blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City. So there's just nothing good to be said about the Branch Davidians and, and what happened 30 years ago. That's right. Um, you know, it's a dark uh, part of American political history. And if you look up um, the American history around um, September or April 18th, you'll see that there's a big um, uh, right-wing anti-government sentiment that's tied to that date. Um, it has to do with the Branch Davidians. It has to do with... Oh, that's my dog. <laughs> it has to do with... Um, the blowing up of the federal building, um, and it's also the the date of the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So it's you know very much um, a key moment in American history that, um, like as you said, it starts with with the date yesterday, but then moves forward anyway. Um, you know, I didn't hear Trump mention Waco. Um, you know, in the Branch Davidians, he didn't talk about that. I was I was interested to hear if he would. Um, so he didn't link it um, orally or verbally. Uh, but it is there, you know, sort of symbolically. And um, and I think that Trump absolutely is a master of symbols and symbology. Um, and, you know, someone like Alex Jones, who was turned into essentially the figure of Alex Jones because he was radicalized by what he thought happened um, in Waco with the Branch Davidians, uh, and who has been very influential in um, not only Donald Trump's thinking uh, in, in his information warfare strategies, but has essentially turned the Republican Party into, you know, the information warfare strategies of Alex Jones um, and his mindset. You know, like it's all of a piece. And so, you know, if you're looking for a, a flag that historians will look at, you know, in 50 years where they say, how did the Republican Party get turned into this radical party of civil war and fascism? You know, they probably will draw a line that will go through Waco. But he's also been saying, Trump, you know, I am your savior, like, not parasizing exactly, but I am your retribution, I think was one of the words that he used. So how much is this going to be not just a fascistic, you know, the closest America's ever gone to fascism if this guy gets reelected? And, and let's face it, he spent a lot of time at the rally in Waco on Saturday trashing Ron DeSantis and imitating him, weeping and crying and begging for his endorsement and trying to belittle him. So let's assume that Ron DeSantis is a flash in the pan, which he might well be. I mean, he's somewhat on the spectrum. He, he doesn't like handling crowds and shaking hands and kissing babies, which is de rigueur for a politician. He also has got some baggage, having been a JAG officer at Guantanamo, where he was supposed to defend uh, the uh, inmates, but in fact apparently derived some sadistic pleasure from watching them being force-fed within shore. So let's assume that Trump becomes the Republican candidate. You can't count it out. You've got all those people in the crowd there in Waco. They love him. 
and there are a lot of people in this country. So how much do you think we're, we're poised uh, for American fascism? Uh, I wish I could tell you. It's a great question. I mean, the threat is obviously there. Um, the stage is set. I think Ron DeSantis is really, you know, very much on board with Trump's policies. I think he's selling himself as, you know, a smarter fascist maybe or uh, more uh, acceptable to the political donors fascism. But it's all the same. Um, his policies are very similar to Trump's. Um I think that, you know, as we have been for the last five years or six years, you know, this country is on a precipice and, um, you know, we really do have a choice to make between democracy and authoritarianism or democracy and fascism, however you want to think about it. Um, you know, Biden has talked about this, uh, you know, in several addresses and, and I don't think it's an exaggeration, um, to, to make that distinction. I think that that is really the choice that we're in. Um, I've been writing a lot about defending democracy and what that might mean. Um, and I hope that people are taking it seriously. And just in closing, Jennifer, you're, you're in the state of Texas. You know, there was some hope that maybe Texas could turn blue a little bit, but it doesn't look like it, right? I mean, uh, now Abbott is passing laws to basically uh, gut the public school system and give vouchers to Christian schools that are anti-woke. I mean, uh, he seems to be really laying down the groundwork for a kind of Christian fascism for future generations. Yeah, it's definitely a worry. Uh, Texas is a non-voting state, so it's really difficult to know if it's truly Republican or if more people voted um, that it might flip blue. And that's, of course, always the hope, right, is that we can get enough people to turn out, enough people will move to the state, et cetera. But Texas makes it very difficult to vote. Um, and so, you know, there's that, uh, and they're, they're making it even harder. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things going on um, in Texas, in Arkansas, in Florida, Oklahoma, I'm all over, you know, the Republican states that are rolling back rights, rolling back civil liberties, rolling back um, protections and, uh, you know, programs like public education that we all have taken for granted for decades and generations. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody knows what the impact will be of those things, but it certainly is, uh, it's not looking good. Well, Jennifer Machia, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I'm sorry it's so depressing, but I think it's important to <laughs> point out what's happening here. It's, it's so obvious that this is a manifestation of American fascism. And this is only, this is his first rally. So this is going to be a very ugly and dangerous presidential campaign, wouldn't you say? I would. I would. So again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the massive protests in France where French voters and workers rise up to protect their generous social programs in comparison to Americans who have far less of a social safety net than the French, who get six weeks of vacation, free health care and prescriptions, and a secure retirement. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Paris is David Andelman, who is a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles, 1919, and The Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, and he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, and he has an article at CNN, Paris is still burning, but Macron survives by a hair. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Andelman. Thanks for having me back. So Paris is, I guess, still burning or smoldering, but uh, it's also stinking, isn't it? Aren't there piles of garbage in the street? Oh, there's like 20,000 tons. It was, was 11,000 last week, but it keeps piling up. Um, the estimate now, I think, is somewhere in excess of um, 18 to 20,000 tons. And and there, it's everywhere. There's, there's, there's just no getting around. It's probably one of the reasons I suspect why uh, King Charles III decided not to come to pay a state visit to um, Macron. There were, of course, a host of other reasons, mainly having to do with his safety and his ability to get from Paris to uh, Bordeaux, which is where he was supposed to be going after his the state visit and the 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 state dinner in the palace of versailles now you can imagine the optics of that though just think about the optics of that this is the palace where louis the 16th was virtually dragged out of there by the mob of the french revolution in 1789 and eventually beheaded in the place de la concorde which has also been the scene of much of the unrest in the last um, several weeks they were going to have a state dinner there for 200 people with red carpets and all of that Except for one problem. The unions, who are basically staged a general strike, said, we're not setting up rolling out any red carpet, and we're not setting up the 200 gilded chairs you might, would need for this dinner. And um, if you can get someone to serve it, that would be fine too, but not any of our workers. So anyway, that's uh, that's <laughs> a little bit where we stand right now. So the issue is uh, Macron decided that because of economic projections that they have to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 years, which still, as you point out, still leaves France in the lower half of European nations. Only Slovenia is 60, which is lower. And of course, in uh, the US, back in 1983, they raised the age of collecting full social security benefits from 65 to 67. So, and as you point out in your article, a raise of the retirement age from 62 to 64 is also offset in a way by the fact that people are living longer and the life expectancy is, has risen in France from 83, from 81 to 83, not necessarily excusing the situation, but isn't this in the tradition of the French standing up for their social safety net, which is in stark contrast to the Americans who don't have anything like the benefits that the French have. And constantly the Republicans are trying to undo Social Security and Medicare. I don't think the Americans have the same kind of reflexive fighting spirit that the French workers have. 
Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, it was about ten years ago when uh, Sarkozy, the um, uh, last uh, sort of moderate right wing uh, president of France, um, he raised the uh, retirement age from sixty to sixty two. There was a lot of unrest at the time. Sarkozy never won a second term. Uh, Macron was basically forced to wait until his second term. Now he has, you know, he figures nothing to lose by doing it. Now he can't be reelected again. He will serve his full 10 years, five and five, and uh, retire. But, you know, it's very interesting. I, I, I've known Macron. Um, Macron was the one who gave me my vision of honor, and I've known him for some time. Um, I, I like to think I'm fairly objective about it, though he actually gave it to me for my coverage of, you know, French presidents back to uh, Francois Mitterrand. Um, but, um, you know, look, my own personal experience is that Macron has taken, he takes a long view of history and his role in it. And my view is he quite rightly believes that this measure is imperative for the very survival of his country. And he's right. It does. The financial advice, financially, France cannot afford to continue uh, paying out all of this money. It, the, the social security benefits are huge, but the French also, they have a, a guaranteed six weeks of of, um, of of vacation every year. Um, you know, 35 hour weeks, that sort of thing. Decades, years from now, long and gone. Uh, and free one. free medical, right? I mean, oh, and free medical. Oh, absolutely. A, a medical plan like nothing we have in the U.S. I mean, you go into a, a pharmacy and you don't pay anything for medicine. You just ask for it, you know, if you have a prescription and they give it to you. I mean, I buy a lot of my medicines, to be perfectly honest, in France, because even if I have to pay full price, it's cheaper than it is here. At, at any rate, decades, years from now, long gone from office, Macron wants historians and he has a deep feeling for history. He wants historians to recall his initiative as having taken a deeply unpopular move that saved their nation at any cost, rather than having been yet another politician with a vision who simply caved to the expediency of the moment and, you know, it all fell to hell. Uh, which is that exactly what's going to what happened. That's what's going to happen. The problem is he's he's a little bit just he's a little bit too much hubris, he's a little bit too arrogant. He has there's a wonderful picture of Le Mans splashed across four columns of his front page this morning uh, showing Macron with his nose in the air. You know, I mean, it's just so imperial looking. It couldn't have one come straight out of one of the, the um, you know, the, the Bonapartes or, or um, you know, the um, uh, the French king, the Bourbons. Um, he can't, he has to get down. He has to understand the need for compromise. And, and that's what he doesn't, he doesn't get that yet. Well, isn't he called Jupiter, named after the Roman god? Yeah, that is one of his nicknames, yes. There are more un, unflattering nicknames, but yes, that is one of his nicknames, Jupiter. And he, he and basically, he realizes when he walks into a room, he is the smartest person in the room. Now, that may be true to a degree, but you can't sort of show that in, in, in politics, especially in French politics, where everybody thinks they're, they're brilliant, you know? Um He's an ANARC, which means he, he graduated from the equivalent of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Oxford uh, combined. You know, um, he, um, he is, he's a very, very smart guy, but he has to understand that there sometimes you just need to give a little. And that was the front page editorial in Le Mans today. They said, pause rather than fracture. He must seize the hand extended by the leader of the moderate trade union, Laurent Berger. He proposed putting the reform on pause. You know, a six-month breather. Let everybody just calm down and then figure out how to implement it. Um, this this can't go on like this. The country's being torn apart, even more so than in the Yellow Vest movement during Macron's first term as president. 
Well, France's uh, eight major trade unions have announced that there'll be a nationwide protest next Tuesday, March the 28th, right? And yep. last Thursday. Well, do you describe what you witnessed, uh, David, on Thursday? Well, I actually, to, to full, full disclosure, I'm not actually in France right now, but um, I, I talk to people over there all the time. I my first wife was actually in there and, and walked through the tear gas the other night, the other night. So, I mean, it's, I have some very firsthand um, perspectives on, on this. I'll be going back in, uh, in May. I usually go over two or three times a year at least, but um, th- things, things are really bad. I mean, they, they, they're as bad as they were almost as bad as they were in 1968 when, which was a real revolution. And, and even before that in 1958, when De Gaulle had to come in and, and just scrap the whole French constitution and the whole fourth Republic and create a new fifth Republic, which is what they operate under today. Um, people are over a million people go, have gone into the street every time there's a general strike and they've been calling them like at least twice, sometimes three times a week, which shuts down everything. I mean, the Metro stops, the subway stops, the buses stop, the trains stop. Um, nobody goes to work. Schools are out. I mean, it's the country comes to a halt uh, with these things. And it, it's not a, it's a terrible position because the French economy is, is it's, it's been, it's not bad. It's not a basket case like Italy or Greece in Europe, but this could easily push it over the brink, especially with the, um, you know, the other problems with potentially recession, a global recession lurking on the horizon. So it's, it's a very difficult time. Very difficult. Well, of course, the manner with which Macron pushed this measure through didn't help, right? That he used a constitutional clause that allows the government to bypass a vote. I mean, was there, was there any chance that he could have got the votes? Did he bungle that in any way? Well, you know, he won it in the Senate with, without too much trouble. And, and um, But his margin in the House is in the National Assembly, it's called over there. There are two, two House parliament. Um, the um, uh, Congress, rather, the um, there's the Senate, like in the U.S., and there is the um, the National Assembly, which is over 500 seats. Um, it's just an enormous and very disparate group, and not just two parties in it. There's probably at least six or eight different political parties of any force. Um, it was it would have been a matter of counting down to the you know by ones and twos whether it actually passed. In fact, a no confidence vote. Uh, he won by just nine votes out of over 500 cast. So it was a very close thing. I, he felt that he couldn't risk it. Um, and, and But even more to the point, he didn't want to have to place his own people from his own party in the very tenuous position of having to vote for a law that is just so deeply unpopular throughout the, the population and risk the next time they come up uh, you know, for a renewal of their terms in office uh, risk being defeated and, and and risk, frankly, a real takeover then by the far right or the far left, which would really push France off into the fringes of Europe, over the, really over the abyss. So he didn't really have much of a choice, I think, on this. It's But it's basically, it's, it's, it's effectively ruling by decree. Um, he basically says, um, we don't have to vote in the National Assembly. We're just going to proclaim that it passed. So you can imagine how, how wonderful Biden would think of that if he could go into Congress and say, all right, OK, but this bill, um, we're going to just proclaim it's done. It's law. I mean, it's, but but that's what they're doing over there. And that yet that the goal insisted that that be part of the Constitution because they had 13 governments in the last six years of the Fourth Republic. It was 
such a chaotic mess. He wanted, De Gaulle wanted a strong president. Well, that's what they got. And sometimes, most of the times it works. And sometimes like this, you know, it's it's a close thing and people go into the streets. So what are the chances of then of blowback? And we've got Tuesday's massive um, nationwide demonstrations. And do you think that uh, Le Pen on the right could benefit from all this? Well, in the, maybe marginally, but I don't know that she's a, she has a, a whole lot of baggage of her own, frankly, at, at this point. Um, I, I like Macron as the only really thoughtful, moderate person around who doesn't have these crazy ideas. You know, if we get to Le Pen, in, uh, Le Pen um, is, is a great buddy of Putin. She hates the idea that France is participating with the rest of Europe in helping the helping the Ukrainian side in the Ukraine war. She wants France to pull out from helping the Ukrainian side in the war. That would be catastrophic because then there'd be all sorts of other currents within Europe who would feel similarly. There's a right wing government in, in Italy right now. Um, so that kind of push toward the right or, for that matter, toward the far left, because they think think very much alike in, in France is another another party, left wing party that uh, has a pretty strong block in the National Assembly called France Insoumise, France Unbowed. That's the far left party of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. And uh, they're, 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 they all hate each other. You know, Mélenchon, Le Pen, and Macron, they all hate each other. And they're all after each other's throats. And, and they're all willing to take France down with it. You know, and they're, it's just, it really is. So a situation like this, where Macron has utterly been utterly unwilling to compromise, that is very scary and very dangerous. So we have to hope that in the next couple of days, before, maybe before Tuesday, Maybe after he sees what happens on Tuesday, we have to hope that there is some movement from the Elysee, from Macron's side, to begin some kind of negotiation with the trade unions and the others who are principally involved. But the deal is done on raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, right? Not entirely. It still has to go before the Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court could reverse the whole process and say, this bill is unconstitutional. It has that power. And they have asked for a uh, an, exp- an expedited uh, review, uh, which would mean, in theory, eight days. So sometime this coming week, we might actually get a ruling from the Constitutional Court. Now, I, I frankly doubt that they're going to say it's unconstitutional. The um, members of the court, at least three of them by my count, are former prime ministers of France and, so they, and, and moderate prime ministers of France. And they understand the problems. Uh, they also understand the problems of having millions of people racing through the streets, you know, tearing the country apart. But um, I, I, can't, I can't see them actually. Now, I could see maybe they're declaring some portions of the law unconstitutional. Maybe a compromise like that could begin to emerge. But we're still waiting for that's the last final. Once that happens, then the machinery, the bureaucracy can kick in and they can move towards um, uh, implementing this. Well, David Edelman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I hope it was of some help, the explanation. Definitely it was. And again, I've been speaking with David Andelman, who's a contributor to CNN and twice the winner of the Deadline Club Award and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and The Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy, Strategy, and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. He's formerly a correspondent for The New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia. He runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, and he has an article at CNN, Paris is Still Burning, but 
Macron survives by a hair. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the history of how foreign wars test the moral convictions of American leftists as the far right and far left embrace an alternative reality that America and NATO are to blame for the war in Ukraine, not Russia. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kazin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Descent magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History, and his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And he has an article at Descent Magazine, Eject the Left-Right Alliance Against Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Case. Good to be back here, Ian. So tell me about the left-right alliance. I mean, it does exist in the sense that there are people on the on the right, like Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who oppose the U.S. aid and arms for uh, Ukraine. But on the left, there are similar voices. But to what extent do you see them in an alliance? Well, I wrote the piece uh, for Descent, it's on the website, um, sparked, I think, by this uh, demonstration which took place in Washington last month, um, one of several demonstrations sponsored by a group called Rage Against the War Machine, which included uh, speakers uh, like Jill Stein, the former uh, candidate of the Green Party in 2016, uh, as well as uh, Chris Hedges, who a uh, popular writer uh, who's uh, opposed pretty much every American war. Um, and as well as um, uh, various figures on the right, like Ron Paul, for example, uh, the former Republican congressman, uh, and, and several other people on the right. Uh, and as you said, uh, the, the message of this group, and this is true of uh, people who are not at the rally as well, like some people, unfortunately, write for the Nation magazine, which I write for a lot, but, uh, uh, but there's some people who have been very critical of U.S. support for Ukraine there and other parts of the left as well, who really sound a lot, uh, unfortunately, like uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, saying there's no reason to uh, U.S. to be supporting NATO. There's no reason for the U.S. to be uh, sparking this uh, war with Putin, and we should just stay out of it. Uh, this has become a common theme, I think, on the anti-war left and increasingly on what you might call the anti-war right. Uh, so there's a sort of coming together, I think, of these two groups. Now, uh, are they in a permanent political alliance? No, but I think they do come together in rallies like this. They do support one another's uh, points of view. And so there's an ideological alliance, I think, which I uh, think is a very bad idea. Well, one of the aspects of American politics that at least I've noticed, and maybe I'm wrong, but 
my sense is that you know Bernie Sanders is, is the, one of the few American politicians who gets it because you know he's obviously very progressive on all domestic issues, uh, but a realist on foreign policy, and uh, he certainly is on board the U.S. supporting Ukraine. So, do you share that belief uh, or that observation, Michael? That American leftists don't seem to recognize that it's perfectly okay to, to be an idealist on domestic issues, but a realist on foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I think the left is split on the issue of, uh, of Ukraine. I mean, in general terms, I think uh, uh, we're in the left to oppose um, a large you know, military industrial complex, uh, a large uh, national security state, all right. But we also have to Look at every uh, every war, every intervention, every issue uh, on its own terms as well. And um, I think there is among people we might might call the anti-Ukraine left uh, a sense that the United States can never be on the right side. Um, it can never do. It can never be uh, whatever. Any any time the U.S. is helping another nation militarily, it can never be uh, right. It can only uh, be wrong. And I think that is is you know uh, is naive uh, because the world's a complicated place. The United States is not the only actor in the world. <laughs> um, Russia uh, is also an important, powerful actor. China is a powerful actor, and so forth. So I think um, what you call realism, yes, I think it's a realistic assessment of what's going on over there. And certainly, Bernie has been, uh, as of most Democratic senators, very supportive of. Uh, intervention in uh, in Ukraine um, or helping the Ukrainians, um, but apart from politicians, uh, progressive politicians who've generally been supportive of the Biden administration policy on Ukraine, uh, there are a lot of activists. I think, as I mentioned before, who are opposed to it uh, because they believe that again uh, the U.S. can never be do, can never do the right thing because we are an imperial country and we have a large military establishment and it must be driving everything that uh, the U.S. does abroad and and, and, and nothing can be can be good uh, that flows from that uh, that power structure. Well, the criticism of it being a war prosecuted by the military-industrial complex, and uh, as Chris Hedges said at the rally, it's good for business. Interestingly enough, it turns out that one of the problems with the lack of preparedness in the NATO countries, who have virtually no ammunition to help the Ukrainians, who the Russians are burning through a massive amount of ammunition. They have a huge industrial, military-industrial base, so they just fire 30,000 rounds a day, and the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition because the Europeans haven't manufactured them. And the U.S. policy throughout the last couple of decades towards NATO was to sell American arms. You know, So the Europeans, NATO is pretty threadbare. And the U.S. is also threadbare in terms of the basics, like ammunition, because their focus is on big ticket items like the F-35, these gold-plated, incredibly expensive Pentagon wish lists that uh, the taxpayer fulfills to the point what you estimate the defense budget is about $2 trillion. So what's happening in Ukraine is small change. Yeah, I make that point that uh, the, the newest aircraft carrier uh, cost $11 uh, billion. <laughs> um, and... Um, uh, Thirteen billion dollars, excuse me, and and you know we've been sending um, about you know three times that amount, a little more than that uh, altogether to Ukraine, 
so it is pretty small stuff. One aircraft carrier, you know, costs a third of what we've been sending to Ukraine. And that aircraft mm. carrier probably wasn't necessary in the first place because uh, there aren't a lot of wars fought with uh, aircraft carriers anymore. Right. And we have 11 of them, by the way. So let's look at the history since you're an historian, Michael Kazin. The Socialist Party in the U.S. opposed entering World War One, uh, but they later gained, I'm just reading from your article, they gained a redemption when Americans learned that U.S. troops had not made the world safe for democracy after all, and then leftists were very prescient in the late 1930s as they rallied to defend the Spanish Republic against the right-wing military and fascist allies, Italy and Germany, and the Republic of Spain's defeat emboldened Adolf Hitler to launch uh, what became World War II. And then 20 years later, the American Communist Party backed the Soviet Union's crushing of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, and they lost a lot. But of course, the, the American Communist Party is not anything much like the American left is today. And But during World War II, of course, when the Hitler-Stalin Pact happened, a lot of American communists were demonstrating against picketing Lockheed out here in California, by the way, for supplying uh, arms to the UK, which is fighting alone. And that they only changed their tune when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. So there's that history. So how do you relate that history to the, the present? Well, you know, historical analogies, you have to be careful about them <laughs> because uh, history, you know, aside from what some people think, uh, historians know history does not repeat itself. Um, but uh, I think it's certainly true that uh, sometimes American intervention uh, would have been a good idea, as uh, in Spain, not directly with troops, but uh, supplying the Spanish Republic with arms, which, of course, the British and French refused to do as well. Um, and so the uh, Republic was was uh, out, uh, uh, at, at armed, uh, out supplied because the Germans and Italians uh, many more uh, planes and, and arms than the Soviets did uh, in supporting the Republic. Um, but I think uh, Spain, in some ways, is is not a bad analogy in the sense. Of course, Putin's not not Hitler, not Mussolini. He doesn't want to doesn't want to take over all of Europe, um, but he does want to um, bring back the Soviet Empire. Um, now would be the Russian Empire, of course. Uh, uh, and in, in that sense, uh, as with Spain, uh, what's going on in Ukraine is an independent country which is fighting uh, for its independence. Uh, against a, a foreign invasion. Uh, there, there was a civil war. Uh, here is a foreign invasion. But clearly, um, the United States in this, in this case, I think, is doing the right thing because we are, you know, helping people uh, who have not uh, uh, been at fault in, in this war. Uh, they're the aggressed upon. So in that sense, um, the left uh, should be a moral force, you know, in this country, of course, and, and in the world uh, as much as possible. Something else which I mentioned in the piece, uh, uh, which is, I think, important historically, too. Michael Walzer, uh, who's uh, my former teacher and also a, a former co-editor of Dissent, along with me, a great political theorist, some folks might uh, might know. Uh, he always says one of the first things leftists should do when we look at uh, what's going on elsewhere in the world is listen to what our friends are saying in those countries. Uh, obviously, uh, every... But uh, every leftist in a country who might want U.S. military intervention cannot get it, and it would not be a good idea for the U.S. to help everybody um, who who wants their intervention against uh, a foreign aggressor. But um, we should at least listen to what those people are saying. Uh, 
um, American communists who listened to what people were saying, leftists were saying in Poland, you know, when they were being invaded, uh, both by the uh, Nazis from the West and by the Soviets later in 1939 from the East. And, uh, and now we should listen to Ukrainian uh, leftists. I quote one of them in uh, my article, uh, Ukrainian sociologist, uh, Alona Vyasheva, who says, um, look, um, it's important to analyze every conflict, understand all the players, the dynamics, and who's culpable. And she said, it's far simpler than many on the left think. Ukraine was attacked by an imperialist army, and we were in a struggle to defend our lives and our very right to exist as a sovereign nation. So um, if we listen to people like this, we should, I think, at the very least, sympathize wholly with the Ukrainians and also understand that without the help of NATO, without the help of the United States, the Ukrainians would have lost by now. And Ukraine would have been taken over entirely by the Russians, as, of course, Putin tried to do you know, a little more than a year ago at the beginning of his invasion. Uh, so um, that, to me, is the, the basics of it. And if the left is to stand for anything in, uh, in the United States and in the world, it's got to stand for people who are getting pushed around. Uh, through no fault of their own, sort of basic moral stand. That doesn't mean, again, that we should, the uh, U.S. should always be supplying those people with arms. Of course not. But at uh, the same time, uh, when there's a possibility of helping people, uh, uh, in this case, uh, without provoking a, another world war, and that's a big question, I think we should try to do it. So there was a recent um, vote in the U.N., a resolution last month demanding that Russia withdraw from Ukraine. And the only countries that voted against it were, of course, Russia, Belarus, North Korea, Syria, Nicaragua, Eritrea, and Mali. And Mali, of course, is relying on Russian mercenaries in a battle against the Islamic rebels. So on the other hand, you have important countries like Brazil and right next door Mexico, whose leaders do not support the U.S. They take a neutral position. What explains mm-hmm. that? There's a lot of talk about how the, the global south does not support the U.S. or NATO in terms of Ukraine. Well, look, yeah, I mean, for a lot of people in the global south, uh, um, governments, first of all, they, they uh, want to stay on friendly terms with uh, economic powers like Russia, uh, because Russia can help supply them with uh, various uh, raw materials, uh, especially, of course, oil and gas. Um, but also there is, understandably, a... Um, uh, resentment against the United States uh, wanting to have its way in the world. Uh, so that produces a certain, uh, as you say, neutrality among some countries like uh, like Lula's Brazil, which otherwise, you know, uh, would be uh, <laughs> supporting what most American leftists want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the legacy of American uh, imperial foreign policy. I think that's certainly true. Uh, on the other hand, you know, one can... <laughs> say that, that uh, governments who believe that are right in the gen- in general terms, but I think wrong in this situation. Uh, and in the end, uh, there's also a question of democracy against authoritarianism. You know, uh, if, if the major uh, uh, forces in the world become Russia, China, or more Modi's India, who, of course, put the, uh, the leading um, uh, opponent of, of the government uh, in jail, uh, you know, Gandhi from the Congress Party, couple of days ago, uh, if they all become the major, major force in the world, then there's going to be a real, I think, uh, push to 
by authoritarian figures in other countries, like in Europe, uh, France, places like that, to sort of follow their lead. Uh, and that's a very dangerous thing because democracy is already in trouble, I think, in the world. Uh, fewer and fewer countries are democratic countries than they used to be uh, uh, by, by every estimate. And, uh, and so that's something that people on the left who believe in democracy uh, uh, should, should be concerned about. Just in the last couple of minutes then, Michael Kazin, where do you see the U.S. Congress heading? I mean, clearly the Freedom Caucus, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are definitely the loud voices, and McCarthy's had, had to cave into them. He's talked about no blank check. At this moment, it doesn't seem like there's a majority in the House. And do you think that there are any, any sign of progressives joining with the right to start opposing the war? Uh, well, you know, progressives, progressive politicians, and if they perceive their voters uh, turning against supporting Ukraine, then then that could certainly uh, you could have a bipartisan alliance in the House, uh, especially against uh, supporting Ukraine. Uh, um, in the Senate right now, at least, uh, most Republicans are supportive of uh, U.S. U.S. support. But look, the longer the war lasts, the more it becomes a stalemate. Uh, the harder it will be, I think, to uh, to make the case to Americans that this is this is a necessary uh, uh, commitment, and then the Europeans uh, hopefully would have to take over. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens. So, you know, the longer war goes, the longer wars go on. Of course, uh, the more fatigue sets in among people who support one side or the other. So, um, we'll have to see. But I don't think you can name anybody, can you, on the left in the House or the Senate that opposes helping Ukraine. Not yet. There are some uh, folks in the Progressive Caucus. I forget um, their names. I think including including uh, Jaipal, the, uh, the, the chair of the caucus, who uh, last year did suggest having immediate negotiations, uh, which right. is something that Ukrainians are opposed to. And then and then uh, there was there was criticism of them by people in the Biden administration, and they took that back. Uh, but I think that will that will grow. Uh, look, I mean, it's it's always true. I think that that most Americans really don't care that much about, about what's going on abroad unless American troops are being killed. Uh, that's, that is pretty much <laughs> something which historically uh, is, is, has always been true throughout American history, um, right. except for certain groups. Like Ukrainian-Americans care a lot what's going on, right? And German-Americans and Irish-Americans cared about World War I uh, and, and British-Americans, but most Americans did not. So, so um that I think is, is a truism, and if we get into an, to if we have an, you know a, a recession uh, later this year or, or early next year, uh, I think, and the war continues to go on, continues to be something of a stalemate, then that that support uh, will begin to crack, uh, unfortunately. But just in closing, obviously, a lot of people are in favor of peace, and that is a noble, necessary impulse. So how do you you know, address people that want peace, which most sentient people do? In this case, it's clear that Putin is not serious about peace talks and wants to pursue the war. So how do you address American leftists who want peace? Well, I mean, I think the first question to ask is, I mean, some American leftists somehow think Putin is, is some sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, anti-imperial, uh, you know, um, uh, champion or something. I'm, I mean, Putin is a, yeah, he's a former communist, but he's he's very much a nationalist right winger. You know, he's uh, his government is is uh, uh, making it very difficult for LGBT people to uh, live out their lives freely. Uh, he's 
he's of course cracking down on free speech, uh, much as the Soviets had. You know, uh, he's putting people in jail for saying anything the least bit critical about uh, uh, about Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. Um, and he's he's aligned very closely with the Orthodox Church. So you know, really, he's we're talking about a, a right wing nationalist here. Uh, and and if leftists want to support someone like that, then they should realize <laughs> that they're supporting. Uh, someone who is opposed to everything, uh, I mean, literally everything they believe, except for the fact that he's anti-U.S. Well, Michael Kaysen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for, uh, for asking me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kaysen, who's a professor of history at Georgetown University and the editor emeritus of Dissent Magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. And he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and, an, and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History. And his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And he has an article at Dissent Magazine, Eject the Left-Right Alliance Against Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. I'm